This is James M. Ward here, and D&D experts like myself love listening to the Save or Die podcast because I learn something new every time I tune in. You burst through the door, you find a small room filled with gold jewels, and a red dragon, he starts to breathe, save or die! Save or Die Podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Bring on your goblin holes and band of oaks, hawking zombies and bows. And oh no, no troll, don't slow me down, oh no. Episode 85, 1985, partying like it's 1985. It's Save or Die, as... Ever, it's DM Mike with DM Jim. Name level podcaster reporting for duty. DM Glenn. Confused as always. DM Liz. Hello, everyone. And a guest DM, DM Greg. Hello, everyone. Greg Gillespie, the author of Barrow Maze, has just- generously decided to sit in with us and give us his pontifications on the subjects of the episode. So with Greg, I that's where I edited in the applause. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this episode we're going to be talking about a oldie but goodie from Chaosium in the mid to late 70s called All the World's Monsters. Three volumes of more monsters than you can shake a glass goblin at. <laughs> all yeah. delightfully typeset as if they were uh, produced on an electric typewriter yes yeah <laughs> I, I looked through it all i could think was ditto machine <laughs> yeah that 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 was that was great how they worked really hard to make it look like it was a fan type thing for for that yeah there's somebody out there who's going to redo this i know there is somewhere <laughs> Alrighty, but first, let's talk about what we've done in gaming since the last episode. Liz? Well, um, we did our weekly second edition game. Um, I cannot think of anything really big that has happened in the last game session. We're mostly just gearing up to do the next big thing so a lot of planning and a lot of running around and getting all of our ducks in a row is pretty much most of yesterday's session there yes um mm -hmm. Uh, we also did another um, game session with angry monk um, with the judges guild module glory hole dwarven mine We've managed to still keep from getting killed. Yay. <laughs> Once again, we're hiding out in an elevator shaft and licking our wounds. and <laughs> We keep from getting killed by, like, dodging and letting the NPCs get hit. <laughs> <laughs> Although they've been evac'd now, so yes. it's just up to us. Yep. Uh, that's, that's all I know. And lunch? Lunch. Lunch oh. today? 
Yeah, well, I guess that's kind of gaming related. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, as some of you may be familiar with Nick Miser's um, research that he's doing on story play and imagination in D&D, he did a Kickstarter for it um, last year, getting funding for going around and interviewing people. Um, for his dissertation work at Texas A&M. He was in Denton this past week, and today he met up with Mike and I, and we're going to hopefully be part of his dissertation. We did a brief interview over lunch at the Greenhouse Restaurant. How cool is that? (laughs) So just met up with us. With a sort of stranger. I mean, we've seen each other at North Texas RPG Con over the past few years. We've just never actually sat down at a game together. Um, so, yeah, got a chance to actually sit and talk with him and spent lunch talking about role-playing games and what we... Yeah, he had uh, Facebooked messaged Liz just out of nowhere saying, hey, we're I'm in Denton anyway, want to... Get together and chat. Like, uh, wow. Okay. Nice. So, all righty. Uh, DM Glenn? Oh, me. Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, oh, I haven't really, I don't think I've bought anything of note except for the Karamikos box set. And uh, another monster book from, uh, from Mayfair. And I can't look at it because it's too far away on the shelf. So we'll just have to guess at that. Uh, Monsters of Myth? Monsters of Myth. And yes, that one. The first the first volume. I just happened to find that there. And uh, it looks really neat. I, mean, it, I think I got, had that back in the day. Is that the one with like the Boris <clears throat> painting on the cover? Yes. And, you know, I think there's more than one volume. But, you know, those those are nice. If you have deities and demigods or legend and lore... I think they're nice, like, you know, compliments to them. Because you got the gods of the Pantheon, and here's some of the monsters from the Pantheon. So it's kind of cool. That's wonderfully mm. in touch with uh, this evening's subject matter. Yeah. Oh, yes, I'm touchy. Um, Even if it is taco. <laughs> I just got back, before recording this, I just got back from seeing uh, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Impressive. Very impressive. We still haven't seen the first Hobbit. Yeah, and where it ends, I can't believe Becky said, they're not going to finish it. Becky, there's one more movie. <laughs> it's like, you should be used to this by now. You've seen the Star Wars stuff. You've seen Lord of the Rings. Come on. <laughs> I was uh, talking to DM Todd just last night, and he uh, dropped on me that since the first hop, prior to the first Hobbit movie coming out, anything in the game store with Lord of the Rings or, the, or uh, Tolkien on it was selling like wildfire. As soon as the first oh, Hobbit yeah. movie came out, all that stuff wow. went dead and <clears throat> sat on the shelf. Wow. Wow. Well, and I'm, like, well, that, I'm like, really? That bad? I, I said, Becky, what would you think? He says, oh, it was great, but I don't care. I finally got to see more of my Legolas. <laughs> <laughs> She's got the hots for that elf. <laughs> really is so, kind of cute. I'm sure and, there's a toy for that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we did the Saturday game. We beat up some uh, orcs and trolls and uh, things like that. Um, out of out of Dyson's delve into some other some other problem, uh, we made nine hundred gold because the town was paying three hundred gold for each troll head or each ogre head we could bring back. We brought back three, so that was a good deal. 
Um, I like the fact we were using uh, some of the miniatures that Matt painted out of the Whisper and Venom box set. Mm-hmm. And I did not know that Matt has struck up a conversation and a friendship with Eric of Lesser Gnome. And Eric's trying to get him in, into a contest that they're having for the painting because he's been putting I've been putting his pictures up there and it's like, oh wow, that's really neat. Those are nice. <laughs> and I love we we ran into two ogres that had uh money sacks on their belt. And Matt said, since Crown Royal is the official dice bag of the OSR, I painted them to look like Crown Royal bags. Oh, nice. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, I'm trying to come up with an adventure for North Texas RPG Con. I came up with the title. I put it in the schedule. So now I have to write a game. Okay. So wish me luck. Cool. (laughs) Yep. DM Jim. James. (laughs) I, I have an impression of Mike. It's like, so what did you do in gaming this week? They're <laughs> 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 trying to lull us all into a false sense of security, and then yeah. he just strikes. Uh, yeah. Like, who am I going to call on first? Liz! No, not me first! Because oh, I'm just listening to old shows, and I, it's the same thing. Every time I'm like, oh, oh, oh me? Um, uh, <laughs> well, I uh, do to... Nighttime and uh, evenings and weekend obligations. I'm retiring from our Save or Die basic D&D game until after GaryCon, so I got my last hurrah with you guys. And uh, I, I, it was a good game, but uh, uh, you guys got to find out why I won't uh, participate in it being recorded for later broadcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I got a little potty mouth in the middle of the game. <clears throat> Y'all did. But it was nice. And it's a good time for me to take a break anyway, because there's a, a player character I'm going to kill soon anyhow. So, <laughs> No no names mentioned. Doc. Doc. Yes. Doc. But lots of uh, taco here. Uh, we ran my campaign and I've uh, last night at uh, Gateway Games here in Cincinnati, and I've collapsed it down to a closed beta group. I was running a table of like 10 to 13. We've got it down to six players, so we can really focus on some of the rules. And I took a just-published Michael Curtis uh, adventure called Intrigue at the Court of Chaos, which you could certainly run for basic D&D, although it's written for Dungeon Crawl Classics, and reskinned the whole thing for my post-apocalyptic campaign. So that was a little judging challenge right there, because I'm reading his uh, Peerless Prose text, which is very... uh, It's not as though he's imitating Gary Gygax's word usage, but it is very uh, erudite text. It's sometimes difficult to read, and I'm trying to paraphrase it into technobabble on the fly. So that was fun. But I was nothing but uh, happy and proud with my players, because they kicked ass. It was more of a... uh, 50% 50% problem-solving adventure, 50% actual combat, and they did really, uh, really well with it. Um, instead of, and, and, and one of the things, uh, I know this is Taco, but one of the things I like about D- the way DCC is constructed, it's a first-level adventure. So at first level, you're off to another plane having an adventure. And uh, instead of being kidnapped by chaos lords and taken to the plane of claim, they, uh, the plane of chaos, sorry, <laughs> they were... Uh, kidnapped by the uh, Matrix of Entropy and beamed into a cybernetic network that exists in the charged ionosphere of the planet. Man, I hate it when that happens. I know, right? <laughs> but it was good stuff. I mean, uh, I can nice. I, I can only take the credit for reskinning the idea um, and uh, adding my art on top of some Doug Kovac illustrations. But when, you know, they uh, 
you know, they're one minute they're having a celebration in their tribal village. The next minute they're sitting in front of five thrones that are 75 feet tall with these uh, giant beings, you know, staring down at them. And I'm just reading what Michael wrote. I mean, those six guys, they were like on the edge of the seats and they were genuinely in real life stunned by what had happened. And I love it when that happens in a role playing game. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That it? Yes, sir. Nothing else? Oh. How about how, what did Greg do? I was about to get to that. DM Greg. Uh, in gaming, I've been I played a couple times with my um, regular group. We've been playing some first level uh, caves that I'm sort of randomly generating on the fly, um, randomly generating everything on the fly, and um, <clears throat> we've done that a couple times. We've had some turnover in our gaming group, so um, we're sort of uh, introducing some new people as we, we sort of move along. Um, I started teaching a course at my university, uh, third, like if you probably know that, uh, I work in a popular culture department, right? So, um, I'm teaching a course, a third year course called the history and culture of role-playing games. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, there's about 45 students in the class. And I'm wow. I'm blending. Um, it's one part uh, sort of academic reading and theory. It's one part popular reading, and then uh, one part sort of experiential. In the <laughs> tutorials, we're working through uh, basic game design with a one-page dungeon format, and then they're going to facilitate their games for uh, their classmates. Great, great, great. What are they That's using a- for the academic reading? Um, I've cobbled together enough readings to, uh, to make a go of it. And then where I sort of, uh, fill in, uh, I fill in the spots where I think, I think there should be stuff, but there's nothing sort of published. So, um, the major topics, uh, we touch on the first lecture deals with, uh, it's sort of a philosophical discussion about the nature of reality and the nature of fantasy and how, um, they're, they're no different is essentially my argument that uh, reality and fantasy have uh, are sort of intermixed, and I want to blur those distinctions for the students. And then um, the second lecture dealt with uh, where did um, role-playing games come from, looking at the tra- traditions of miniature wargaming and fantasy fiction. And then from there, uh, on to other subjects like um, the moral panic uh, in the 80s, um, looking at uh, the representation of women in role-playing games, sort of hitting all the major uh, topics as I move along. And then the okay. other part that's, that's neat about it is that we do some um, video conferencing with people involved in gaming. So this Wednesday, for example, we're talking to uh, – we're video conferencing Susie Yee from uh, Expeditious Retreat Press ah. in, into the classroom. And then um, at the end of uh, – End of February, I'll be t- we'll be talking to uh, James Malczewski, uh from Gun Control, wow. and then this, this is the best part. So we're going to uh, one of the popular readings is uh, Dave Ewalt's of Dyson Men that came wow. forward in the in uh, 2013, and then they're going to do a book report on it, and then we're going to video conference with them the day that it's handed in. Cool. Cool. I'm going to take your class. Where the hell were you when I was in college, <laughs> sir? Yeah. yeah. No, I've no. had a few of those conversations, actually. <laughs> no, no. Mike, Mike, 
Mike, Jim, Liz, you know he's got all this academic syllabus stuff up there. But when he's lecturing and talking to them, you know he's thinking, okay, I got X amount of people I can break up into like six person groups to play D&D here. This one can that. He's setting up a whole convention with 45 people in his class, basically. <laughs> yeah. have, you got, have you got that little wizard stamp for degrading papers? <laughs> Thou shalt no. not pass. Boom. Uh, I'll take it if you want to uh, send me a, send me one. Okay, <laughs> cool. And then right, well. uh, I, I had the uh, the kick the uh, crowdfunding campaign launched last week. That's Yay. so it's been, it's been a lot. Not a lot of sitting down gaming per se, but a lot of stuff related to gaming. So that's Indiegogo, okay. isn't it? Yes, it is. It's on Indiegogo. Um, it, so what uh, the the short version of the story is. Uh, I'm going to take Barrow Maze 1 and 2. I'm going to combine them into one definitive volume. Uh, I'm going to add um, a lot of material that sort of I outline on the campaign page. Uh, Air Lotus has agreed to do the cover art. I've, um, I've Yeah, no, it's pretty exciting. And I've been um, talking to Tim Timothy Truman for a long time, um, trying to get him to contribute art to Barrow Maze. So uh, that finally went through, and I, I sent him some some. <laughs> illustration briefs so i'm pretty excited about that as well that's great Excellent. that's great and, and i saw the, i saw the kickstarts that's it's really nice especially the the, the levels of funding um there's had, some uh, miniatures from other world in their mix i know too, right? i know i'm i'm trying to plan which kidney i'm going to sell to get up to that level <laughs> <laughs> well um if if a campaign gets funded um it's um uh, fixed at fifteen thousand. So if it gets funded, there's a minimum of twenty miniatures to go along with um, the Barrowmaze complete book. So that'll be pretty exciting. And the, and the more funding it gets, the more additional miniatures I'll add in uh, oh, to it. So nice, okay. nice. And how many days you got to go on that? Um, it's got about uh, it's in the high thirty thirty seven days. And if you're yeah. counting or you pay attention to details, that means it ends on. March 4th. Ooh. Okay. We'll put a link to your Indiegogo campaign in the show notes when we put the episode up. Yeah. Sure. Check it out, folks. Yeah. Sounds like it's definitely worth the money. Uh, yes. Something I do want to ask while we're still on the subject and before we go on to emails and stuff. Um, you mentioned in your introduction to the Indiegogo talking about some of your previous things as well as the Barrow Maze Tees. Do you still have any of the T-shirts from that last campaign? And if so, where could people go to buy the T-shirts now if they're available? Uh, I have uh, some with me, so people could email me um, directly. Mm -hmm. or um, And then I also know that Black Blade um, also have some as well. So um, there, there aren't a lot. But uh, if people let me know, then I can definitely try to track down a size for them for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fantastic. And we need to talk to you after the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, about the only thing I'll add to Liz's thing is I have discovered something else to complain about 2E other than proficiencies. Yay. <laughs> Just one more thing? <laughs> Just one more thing. Uh. My DM informed us that when you get another magic user spell book, you can't memorize a spell out of it. You have to copy it into your spell book before you can memorize it. But, but you can cast directly from the spell can, book. Oh. 
for one and it time, fades you, away. Yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a money sink. That's all it is. Just deal with it. It's stupid. <laughs> I'm just hearing Jim Ward's voice in my head. That's very disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry you feel that way. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry that you'll now have to die. Anyway, so that's all I'm going to add. And then, so unless someone has anything last minute to throw in, let's go to emails. Being read by, unusually this time, by Liz. Yeah, because I never read the emails. Ever. Oh, never, never, ever. All righty. Well, our first email is from Michael White. And Michael writes... I just recently listened to an episode in which Liz mentioned Castles and Crusades as being a good RPG for people moving from D20 Pathfinder to old school. Though this is a pretty good choice, it will cost you some money. I would recommend Basic Fantasy at http colon slash slash basicfantasy.org. And we'll put it in the list. It does a great job of stripping down the 3.5 SRD to its bare essentials to create a game very similar to Moldvay Basic in its overall feel. Couple that with it being completely free, with massive amounts of downloadable supplements and adventures to suit a variety of tastes, and you have a winner that allows anyone to engage in an enjoyable classic-style campaign. Also thought I'd mention, several of the books are available on Amazon for around $4 or less, as the author-slash-publisher is viewing this as a gift to the community and only charges for the actual printing costs. Thanks for the fun show. Michael. Thank you, Michael. Oh, thanks, Mike. And, yeah, and uh, might that's I That's Mariah's uh, game. It is? Oh, okay. Yeah, really? that's Solomariah's from Dragon's and- let me let me add that uh, Basic Fantasy is working on a uh, monster manual type thing, and some of my art and a lot of Corey's art are in it. Ooh, lightning <laughs> plug. Plug, <laughs> plug, plug, plug. Yeah, both of those. You know, Castle Crusades and Basic Fantasy is excellent to you know do the with. It's a it's a withdrawal drug basically into a good game. So <laughs> now now I'm going to have to get it because I love Corey's art. Yeah, uh, if you go on there. Uh, if you go on there, uh, I think it's uh, – I forget who it is, but I think it's um, – anyway, w- the the website, the message board, you can see some of this stuff on there. Yeah. And anyway, go ahead. I'm sure it will have links over from the main base BFP oh, yeah. game still, page, which we'll post up. Yeah, I'm still waiting for Petty Gods. Anyway. Thanks, thanks for the Mike. suggestion, Michael. Yes. All righty. Our next email is from Rust. Rust. And Rust Rust is back, and Rust says, Greetings, Saber Diecast. It is me, aging Rust, with an answer to the question, I don't understand why people like recorded game sessions. By the way, Rust never ages, it just increases its consumption. (laughs) (laughs) If I were to boil the answer down to a short sentence, it would be a free audiobook. The long form of the answer has been deleted many times already. But it's basically in my mind. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, we would know, but he deleted it. <laughs> His mind or the... Yeah. <laughs> Hush, we've got somebody who wrote us a short email. <laughs> what you meant to say was, thank you. Yes. Um, a free audiobook on my favorite game, 
with a new and exciting flavor of GM and playstyle and a plot line that is unique. But you also get the side commentary of the game. You can hear examples of gameplay. And the after commentaries from players is often filled with great game ideas and plot lines to steal. If you're lucky, you find a game with examples of game fights between players or the GM and players. Interesting <laughs> and useful for how not to run a game. A tough subject to describe. Another way I thought of is radio broadcast shows. The Shadow, Superman, and other such shows are basically the same thing, just more professionally done. And may also, maybe you know what's wrong with people these days. I have shown them books, talked on playing an RPG game, and even talked on playing board games. The most I got was, yeah, that would be fun. The only thing left to do is beat them in the head with some books while screaming, would you like to play a game? Seriously, or sincerely, Rust. <laughs> he must be I think that's the best, uh, best thing to do there, Rust. Yeah, but don't do it at your library. It tends to get you thrown out. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean, their actual play podcasts are popular. They are. Um, so I, it's obviously, I personally have liked the Delvers because mm. they, you know, they keep, they, they edit it down to the core activities without getting drug out, you know, in two and a half hours of, of game time. But people, some people really enjoy listening to that. Uh, I did two episodes of the Marvel Superheroes face rip game with Vince's DMing, and all we got back were were uh, were emails on how Vince wasn't doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Well, I mean, yeah, well, it, it, it is a matter of taste, and I can't apologize for what I personally like and don't like. But uh, they've been begging us on Spellburn to do this, and finally, one of the Spellburn hosts, Jeffrey Tadlock, started recording his uh, Roll Twenty sessions with his players and posting them at the uh, on his Iron Tavern Iron Tavern blog. And that ah. that uh, live play podcast has gotten popular as hell within like eight episodes. So I was going cool. to ask, how was it received after he did it? I, I I get to hear him tell me the stories, which is good enough for me, but I can only imagine the podcast must be fairly rowdy because he's running a chaotic crew. I mean, they'll sacrifice <laughs> a virgin without thinking twice about it. Wow. <laughs> you should, uh, try our AP uh, Thinko's Hammer podcast sometime. Mm. Corey and Fulon in the same game? Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever listened to any actual play podcasts, Greg? Oh, yes, all the time. Um I I think that uh, the I think there's a happy medium in there. There's a sweet spot that's uh, entertaining to listen to, and yet doesn't um, you know it doesn't isn't necessarily the entire podcast. Where the you know what I suggested with the Delvers is that uh, you know if if you get a long drawn out session or, or you know point of discussion prior to some action, maybe the the person hosting the podcast can can sort of give a sentence or two overview of that and then get back into the action without sort of a major disruption in the flow of the podcast. So, um, yeah, I enjoy listening to them. Um, and you know, some are more entertaining than others. Okay. There is a chimeric, uh, quality to the personal chemistry. I mean, like the four of us, we just kind of fell into this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it's one of those, if it's a good group, it can be entertaining. If it's not, it's, not <laughs> yeah pretty good pretty much okay thanks rust thank and you Rust. don't know if we answered your questions necessarily but we appreciate the explanation 
And our final email for today's show is from David Lynch. Probably I love not, that dude's movies. I was going to say, probably not the guy who did Twin Peaks, but oh, you never know. If you are, write in and let us know. Yeah, and what, what are you going to release Eraserhead, the RPG? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, David writes, hello, Sod Gang. Hi. Recently discovered your podcast while rediscovering my roots in the classic gaming world. I began with the Holmes Blue Box in 1978. Ah, a man of impeccable taste. There you go. (laughs) I am slowly working my way through your archives and loving the banter. It's fun to listen to a group that can have fun without resorting to four-letter emphasis. Well, usually. (laughs) We We edit those out. I noticed there's three spaces between it's and fun, so it sounds like it's fun. (laughs) That may have just been something that happened when I was cutting and pasting. But anyway, it says, call me a prude, but I feel curse words have lost their impact in speech these days due to overuse. But I digress. I have a question from adventure number 23, when DM Mike mentioned his world of a din. I would very much like to look at it, but I can't find it, maybe because I'm not spelling it correctly. Um, and he does spell it A-D-E-N in the email. It says, I love to explore other DMs' worlds for ideas and inspiration. I am working on my own world as a way to reacquaint myself with the game after a long hiatus. Actually, I forayed into the editions without name, and I want to return <laughs> classic. But I digress again. Thanks for the great podcast. You make my drives to work go entirely too fast. David. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Uh, David and that's the returning question. to classic is never digress- digression. Never. Never. <laughs> and well, there's nothing more the, old school than creating your own campaign world from scratch. Oh, absolutely. Um, yep. As for my campaign world, uh, it's called Guide to the Realms of Aden, and Aden is spelled A E D. E-N-N-E. It is also under DF11 on Dragon's Foot, and we'll put a link in the uh, show's show list when we post the episode. Yep. And I'll just say now, the house rules in the back, two-thirds of them I don't use anymore. But they're you there. You figure out which two-thirds. Yeah. Well, <laughs> one of them you'll recognize is a spell point system, which, according to the last episode, I've made clear I don't use anymore. Oh, okay. So but it your, is there. In, in your personal campaign world, Mike, what happens when you get your hands on another wizard spellbook? You can use it. You, as long as you memorize, you read it. You use a read magic. You memorize the spells. You can use it just like any other spellbook. Sweet. So. And if you want, you can cast them directly out of the book, but like a scroll, it disappears. Because I've noticed, you know, when Liz is cooking, she got, has her cookbook out, and if she reads it directly from the cookbook, <laughs> the rest I hate disappears. It when that if you make your banana bread like Kugel the Clever, <laughs> the recipe is gone. Very annoying. Very annoying. I'd recommend well, to, the, uh, to the emailer. Um, uh, in terms of creating your own campaign world, if you can, if he does have the opportunity to play with a group, um, go the other way around and maybe set up uh, an initial uh, location, town, village, what have you, and then you know have an idea or two for some side adventures, and then let the players sort of figure 
things that you you can determine what's in your hexes randomly and have it sort of organically develop through play rather than preceding play. And um, that's a fun way to go as well. Actually, um, in the forward to Guides of the Realm to the realms of Aden, I say that's exactly how it originally started. I originally just had a couple of towns, a dungeon area, wilderness, and then as the players kept going, well, what's over here? What's over there? It eventually got bigger and bigger, and that was my campaign world. So, I stand. But corrected. yeah, that's a very huh. I stand corrected. That is even more more old school. The way you just said. <laughs> that's right. Like if you don't have anybody to play with, and you're, you know, you want to uh, you know start creating and thinking about the game and the dynamics of play and working through some old mechanics you don't remember, absolutely go ahead and you know whip yourself up a region or world or whatever suits. And uh, but if you have the opportunity to play, um, maybe maybe uh, use that, um, and you'll be as surprised with the results as your players. Yes. Let your mm-hmm. players do half the work. How many mm-hmm. of us right here? when they first started did the thing where you've got like 10 by eight sheets of hex paper all taped together with like crayon mapping. Uh, When I started, I couldn't even find hex paper. I had to use lined notebook paper to draw my stuff on. Or graph paper. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, if you come, come into Oklahoma city, I'll take you over to my DM Matt's place where in his office, he has graph paper taped up, on the entire wall with pencil and colored pencil of his world of Mythgarther. It covers the entire wall of 8 by eight by 10 graph papers. Oh, sweet. Stuff like that makes my little old school heart get all Ta- warm and fuzzy. Next time I'm over there, I'll take a picture and send it to you. All right. Well, thanks for the emails, everybody. Thank you. And if you want to write in, you can write us at... That goes hammer podcast at gmail.com. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> well, I got the podcast part right. <laughs> Save or die podcast at gmail.com. Or you can call our voicemail, and we have some. We're really going to play them in the next episode, Honest, at 940-536-3763. And now that we've caught all our business up there, we're going to talk about all the world's monsters first published volume one in 1977 but first we're going to talk about some very important announcements which could save your life you've been through basic training you will learn by the numbers i will teach you major bones in the first edition hey that's my princess go find your own time to kick it in a second let's rock this joint if two is your thing listen to thaco's hammer the best damn ad&d second edition podcast ever join dm's glenn everybody p good brian Oh, the uh, our cu- the cultured one in this program. Somebody has to be. <laughs> Corey. I got liquor behind the bar, which is on the other side of my gaming books. And full-on gamer. Put a friggin' heavy-duty friggin' buttstock on there with an adamantium or a mithril or iron <laughs> or whatever it is he wants for a cap on it. As they discuss, review, and generally BS about 2E in all its glory. I'm going to go with five cyanosis and a jester. That'd be epic. <laughs> a jester? Epic. Seriously? A half yeah, a it... Check it out at thakoshammer.info. That uh, Crip thing. Crip servant. <laughs> yes. What, what could we do with these guys? Well, aside from you... guarding crypts. I'd well, say yeah. put them in a crypt. Aside <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. Oh. Okay, put them in a crypt. They're going to be found in crypts. It won't hurt. Maybe you could 
Put them in a crypt. Besides, you might learn something. A, a really cool, different idea you can do. I don't know, Corey. You might want to slow down. because This seems like it might be a pretty <laughs> wild out there thought. You could, but you could put them in a crypt. Holy crap! A crypt? <laughs> Save or die, top five. In five, four, three, two. The Save or Die Top Five, and we're discussing all the world's monsters. All of them. Every every single one of them. Alphabetically. (laughs) Yeah, sure felt that way. What? In 1977, that was a technical advance. <laughs> well, that was the same year the AD&D Monster Manual came out, wasn't it? Uh, first so. volume of All the World's Monsters came out prior to that. Well, that, considering, that considering that the monsters in the brown books were not anything like alphabetical in order, this was, <laughs> as Jim says, a massive leap forward. Yep. <laughs> well, first impressions on the book. DM Jim. Uh, it's, I can't do this without rose-colored glasses because uh, I had my hands on one of these back in the day. Um, our DM had one and, and wouldn't allow us to look at it. So all I ever got to see was the cover. And I just slavered over it. And I'm like, I'm going to get one of those one day. I'm going to get one of those one day. And it obviously didn't happen until decades later when I went back and accidentally found some on eBay. So to me, it was just like golden treasure back in the day. And, of course, you couldn't look at it because you're a player and – Players right. should never look at monster or DMs books. Mike, you're going into taco territory pretty soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, it was that way with the brown books. I mean, I was True. a teenager, so I don't know why I didn't just go to the store and get my own copy, but somehow that didn't happen. Well, Liz, your first impressions? Booger art. <laughs> <laughs> it had the same kind of artwork as the original brown books and you know i'm looking through it and it's like oh it's got brown book art you know <laughs> um so yeah that was the first thing that hit me glancing through it it's like oh it's got the brown book art yay <laughs> and yeah that these are jam packed with a lot of things um I will say, like some of the other, you know, monster books, either put out by TSR or others, there's a lot of gravel that you sift through to find the gems. But there, there's some good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Glenn? I, looking through it, I had an incredible sense of deja vu. Because I looked at it and I kept flashing back to the uh, Judges Guild Field Guide. Volumes one and two of monsters, mm-hmm. except these were more where you don't have the funky pseudo role playing system in there, but you have like tons and tons and tons and tons of monsters. We didn't even think these through. We just slapped them in here, type of thing. Mm-hmm. But she's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of dross before you get to the diamonds, but there are diamonds in there. Okay, DM Greg. Uh, first impressions, um, aesthetically unpleasing. <laughs> really? <laughs> and the other th- uh, first impression I had was all the descriptions are in caps, so I feel like the person's yelling at me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, back in the day. that. Right. But yeah, nowadays, obviously, that's 
that's the paradigm that's gotten across. Yes. First thing that stood out to me, I don't care what they were saying. This is obviously for D&D. I mean, they were barely even pretending. <laughs> um, I don't I mean, think there sure. was any pretense. <laughs> and, and, of course, back in the late 70s, they didn't feel that they had to. You know, they they didn't use D&D as the, this is for Dungeons & Dragons, but, of course, you look at the you know, my, it's my fa- you know what my favorite part of this is, is the second volume, because you know how they said, for any game system, although it looks like D&D, and then the second volume in the intro to the conversion to TNT, Ken St. Andre busts them. Yeah. It's well, like, his, no, his, there's his, no TNT out of here, but here's well, how to do it. I don't own a first printing, but the first printing of the first volume did say D&D in it, and of course they got a Gary oh. letter, and that was the end of that. Okay. Yeah. Well... But, Let's not get into that till we get to our top All five. Right. And since we've already done that, uh, <laughs> the way we do this, Greg, we start at five and work our way to one. There's the top five things that stood out to you in the book. They don't need to be good. They could be bad. But we'll go down the countdown. Fifth thing, Liz. Well, um, I'll say there's a lot of boobage in the in the art <laughs> i i couldn't help but no- yes i couldn't help but notice there's an awful lot of you know semi-naked women running around in there God, I or, right. or monsters that you're reading the description the description says nothing at all about whether or not it looks female but when they did include a picture it's a female who isn't wearing a top <laughs> <laughs> And I do think my one of my favorite pictures was in the first volume, and it's a picture of a fury, and you've got the classic pin-up, over-the-shoulder butt shot, <laughs> but it's the booger art, so you're going, well, it's not that F- sexy. F-F-F-F, fury, 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 fury. Hey, 70s teenagers... You know, you got what pinups you could get. Yeah, it's like, whoa, nipple, look! See, that's what I'm saying. This is triggering my dyslexia because at the time and through glasses and nostalgia, I'm sitting here going, God, I miss the 70s. Wasn't that great? And now I'm like an adult feminist, you know, respectful of women in uh, fantasy illustration art. So it's confusing to me to talk about. He does have a flat butt, though. So what's your fifth, Jim? Um. I just love the uh, literary references that are buried throughout it. I mean, is at ah, you got my four. Oh, sorry. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, because it was just uh, a massive con- contribution, partly from uh, Dungeon Near Magazine, and partly from Steve Perrin, and partly from Dave Hargrave. So it's just a whole melting pot of things. But as you read through there, you're suddenly, oh, here's a Jack Vance monster, or here's a C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis creature, and that, I love that. Greg. That was my fifth. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. I was surprised to see the re- the literary references as well in terms of inspiration for monsters. Mm-hmm. Glenn, well, <laughs> I'm surprised. You know, at the high wattage contributions in here from like Greg Stafford and Ken Saint Andre and Hargrave and all that, it's almost like they're just like you know. Flipping the bird to TSR, saying, you can't get your stuff together. Here, here's a book of monsters. Mm-hmm. And I like that rebel spirit. Okay. My fifth would be the uh, 
<laughs> very varied use of the term alignment. <laughs> <laughs> they had chaotics, they had lawfuls, they had hungry <laughs> as an alignment. They had, you know, chaotic evil, or, you know, basically you could use this whether you're three, five, nine, or just goofy. I liked that because it, it didn't quite hammer them down that much. So that, that stood out to me for fifth. Number four. Liz? Okay. Um, one of the things that was also very amusing to me going through this is they would take the name of something that you were familiar with and then make it into a monster that has virtually nothing to do with the name that you are familiar with. Um, for instance, you have the Batarang. Um, oh yeah, it's like it's a it's a little bat like creature. But I read that, and the first thing that I thought of was Batman and his utility belt. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they're critters. <laughs> I forget. So, did they did they uh, act like a boomerang, or was it not, just a bat looking creature? Well, they were teeny weeny little things, and let me see if I can flip over there real quick um yeah there are little little monkey sized bat winged creatures um i was assuming they mean like a rhesus monkey or something because there's monkeys and then there's monkeys yeah um you know fur covered body hands on the ends of its wings um it specifically when it attacks it specifically goes for the head of its victim (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, and um, they they have a, a vocal attack, which acts as a fear spell, and they have two claws. And there's nothing whatsoever about it, you know, acting as a boomerang in any way. Um, they're, they're just called batarangs, and they're little bat monkeys. And you okay. can, if you find young, you can train them to serve. And jump on other people's heads. That's right. <laughs> okay. You're number four, Jim. Um, because of the time it was written and the, and the sources they drew it from, there's a, uh, shall we say, lack of professional polish to the character names, just as uh, Liz was alluding to. But what I like about it is how sometimes it's very uh, a poor name choice, and sometimes it's just simple and it's pure genius. There's a blast puppy. There's an air <laughs> squid, you know. I did like the air squid. <clears throat> they make no sense, but I like them. Um, so, uh, it, you know, uh, the uh, case you noted aside, you can go down through the contents manual, you know, farming for encounter ideas today in 2014 and see Blast Puppy. Okay, let's see what that is and get something good out of it. Yeah. Can anybody explain to me why the demon of love and madness was a middle-aged uh, <laughs> oriental guy in a in an, in a racing orange suit? That's got to be some sort of obscure animation reference or something, but I, I couldn't get that. Hmm. Oh. Anyway, so, so uh, your number four. Hmm? I was going to say, so what I'm saying would be a detriment to some people, but I, I like the charm of that. Yeah, yeah. It shows some creativity, whether, you know, it's the direction you want to go or not. Okay, your number four, Greg. Uh, number four is the bomb monster. Alignment is hungry. 
Found, <laughs> found in Dungeons, written by uh, Jim Ward. A radioactive creature with a highly unstable nature. It resembles a bowling ball with tiny wings. It purposely <laughs> tries to touch or be touched by any living thing that comes near it. When touched, it explodes, doing 10d8 damage to anyone within five feet. In two melee turns, the fragments of the creature will reform. It will proceed to eat those who are killed by the blast. There's another paragraph, but I'll spare you that. That's my number four. No, dude, that's genius. <laughs> that's straight from Dungeoneer magazine. That was that was published in an uh, early issue of Dungeoneer. <laughs> Did uh, was there a description? I mean, I you know you said the I know. You said the black bowling ball, but was there like a fuse on it, maybe? Or, <laughs> yeah. or is that just implied? I think it's implied. Ah, okay. All righty. Number four, Glenn. Well, I noticed because it was the Times, uh, they had some Arsenonian um, mix of sci fi in here. Especially in, in volume two, where I find, let's see, the bionic bat, the bionic pa- uh, paladin, the bionic unicorn. For a minute, I thought I said the bionic platypus. But uh, <laughs> hey, they have wire platypus in there. Yeah, true. <laughs> but uh, I like, I, you know, I don't usually like to mix my sci fi fantasy, but I give them points for, for that, you know. Uh, like a metal bat with a 20-foot wing spread, two lasers, two electrical guns, and two gas vents containing sleep, cloud killer, hallucinogenics. <laughs> I think I, I imagine some things that are showing up in uh, Jen's reskin. <laughs> I've, I've I, used creatures in my campaign recently from this book. Have you? All right. All right. Well, as I said earlier, my four was the literary references. And I'll just add, as well as Vance and Lewis, they had uh, some Piers Anthony and Offit, Andrew Offit stuff as well. I mean, it's a real wide range of authors, which I think is pretty cool. Right. Now, the question now, is, did would they have gotten in trouble for a lot of these? I mean, obviously, as Jim mentioned earlier, they talk about D&D in the first printing, and then they had to yank it and make a second one where they don't mention D&D by name. You know, do, do you think that they even bothered to get permission? For- no. <laughs> I'll bet I they found- didn't. And most authors probably, unless they started making serious money off it, wouldn't care. Which is, what's yeah. odd about that is this is how of the time, the particular 1977 period this is, because this is a chaosium uh, Thing and that's the same company that came after TSR for the first edition of Deities and Demigods with the Cthulian and Mel mm-hmm. Bonet and well they weren't the Mel I get it mixed up but you know what I mean mm-hmm. actually actually didn't Chaosium also do the Stormbringer RPG right right yeah. so it was the Mel Bonet yeah. mythos that you know they're like hey if you're gonna TSR if you're gonna put that in Deities and Demigods we want some credit right. But and, in '77 uh, nobody cared except Gary. Speaking, speaking well, TSR. Oh sorry, go ahead. Well, also in 1976 was the year that American copyright law started getting a lot tougher. So, you know, this this may be – I don't know if that has any influence, but it may be that, you know, in 1977 they were still going on what they basically thought were the old rules. Mm -hmm. And if you ever wanted to use a monster, the Conehead, you could use this book. 
<laughs> they have the SNL Coneheads in there as monsters. Yeah. And speaking of TSR, I found an axe beak in there. I'm going, whoa, did somebody get on him for that? <laughs> There's an eye of fear and flame in there as well. Oh, boy. There's a critter in the third volume yeah. called Bahamut, but it's, <laughs> but it's not a dragon. It's a catfish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their Nyatharlatep was a bit different, too. Um, it, it apparently, it apparently he got his jollies by taking on the form of just some Joe average monster and attacking the party. Only it was, he basically had tons of hit points and regeneration. So you're fighting, oh, say a kobold and he ends up kicking your butt. Definite variances on themes. So number three, then back to me. Yeah. Okay, well, um, number three, um, one of the entries that I thought was quite amusing is the random horror. And it's literally exactly what it says on the tin. It's completely random. You fill in your own values. (laughs) It can be any type of monster or man. Even a a, a pumpkin-headed satyr. Yeah, it's like so. It's AC equals three minus the dungeon level on which it appears. Its hit dice range is dungeon level plus five plus a random number, and (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's all random stuff that you just roll or do whatever. So. You you don't know what it is until you've finished doing all these rolls and stuff. Um, get a feeling they had like an empty space. Yeah, it's like ra- random or yeah. So it could be anything. It could have any kind of attack, and it could have any type of hit dice or armor class. It's like, well, wouldn't it be faster just to flip open the book and randomly point your finger than spend all this time making up the random horror? <laughs> Was there a picture? Um. There was a picture next to it, but it's not of the random horror. Oh, okay. Or maybe it is because well, it's it, random. It's, it says Razor Tongue. Oh, okay. <laughs> razor Tongue. That sounds like a horror movie. It's a bear. Oh. Actually, it looks like a really enraged koala. <laughs> it does. A, were- a koala of death. It's ill tempered. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet. If I look like a koala, I'd be ill-tempered, too. (laughs) Okay, Jim, you're number three. Um, This is not something that I would ever personally use, but as a game historian point of view, having read John Peterson's Playing at the World, uh, I love the Perrin convention. I mean, uh, because I've played, uh, you know, more recently in games, OD&D games run by Tim Kask and Metamorphosis Alpha games run by Jim Ward. So I know how they GM a game today in terms of how uh, cranked up everybody gets about initiative and combat order and combat sequence, all that stuff. And the parent uh, conventions uh, show that there were people who loved their crunch in 1977. I mean, because my, my God, that's, you know, Anything you could want to know. I fire magic missile. I need to, you know, polish my dagger blade. It's in the pairing convention. What order of action you take in a combat round. Yeah. I love that stuff. Well, the 70s was the era of the monster board games, war games, where 
you set it up, you know, playing time, 24 to 72 hours. But I, I just I love that you can you can look back and see that there was still that tension between uh, you know I want a lot of crunch in my game or I just want to roll dice and play. Yeah, yeah, which is reassuring in a way because it's still you know yo-yoing today. Mm-hmm. Greg, <clears throat> uh, number three is the cockroach that ate Cincinnati. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Who wrote that? Cade <laughs> uh, Jones. Oh, okay. The description reads a huge, with asterisks on either side, cockroach, <laughs> usually found in Cincinnati or any city other or other area with lots of edibles, may also <laughs> be found in the basement of the El Cortez Hotel in San Diego from hmm. the song The Cockro- Cockroach That Ate Cincinnati. I'm going to have that Demento song to show. go through my head. <laughs> there was a song? Yep. Yeah. Dr. Demento. Look how ah, okay. That kind of thing. Okay. Well, that explains the reference. Another, well... It, it must have thrown back up later because Cincinnati's still here. <laughs> Almost ate Cincinnati. <laughs> Glenn, your third. My third. Well, I just found a third. Stumbled on, <laughs> on here. The monster is named the God Stalker. Mm. A thirty he he is type animal, thirty foot long hideous snake with two front legs, each terminating in five sh- large sharp claws. Tongues hollow when it strikes and injects the acid of the victim's body. Its favorite food is the flesh of horses, mules, and cattle, so way of bothering people. But it is most willing to try the flesh of men or dragons. It's immune Why to is sto- it a god slayer? The god stalker is immune god-stalker. to to Stoning, fire, and lightning. It is a like, vampire-like regeneration. It is never found in cold areas. It's immune to stoning. Well, I'll remember that. Carry <laughs> stones around. Well, this is uh, the seventies. Ah, <laughs> that's true, dude. Thought, and you know, with just a little modification, I could turn this into Trogdor. So, you know, <laughs> instead of instead of you know venom, let them burninate people. <laughs> Okay. My third is a gripe. And I suppose it falls under the, like Jim was saying, the creativity, and maybe it's inevitable with so many different people submitting. But the relative power level of them are way all over the place. Oh, my. Um, <laughs> the one that stood up to me mostly is that you have somebody's brown bear. That could rip apart and devour a polar bear. <laughs> yeah, on the same page, and it's like, wait a minute, this brown bear could eat this polar bear for lunch, both in hit dice and you know to attack. But you know, it was done by two different people. So, global. So warming. that's a gripe of mine. It's a minor gripe though, because obviously, if any DM worth their salt can tweak the monster to to suit. True. So. Number two, Liz. Okay. Um, in our third volume of this, we have a rainbow demon. <laughs> That's not like something with, you know, Care Bears or something. I know. It's, it's not... Doesn't it sound sweet? Does, um, is the vo- it was it voice like by LeVar Burton or what? <laughs> it's a demon killer demon. Well, you got to like that. 
Yes. Um, and a demon that kills demons? Apparently so. Sounds like the Department of Redundancy Department. Yeah, and exactly. That's right. <laughs> a demon killer demon. It looks like a huge spider with eight 20 foot long legs. Pookie! And a small <laughs> five foot black crystalline body. Each leg is a different color, has a different power, is a different armor class, and is neutralized in a different manner. You were saying about Crunchy, Jim? Uh, that's just beautiful, and it's crunchy. <laughs> and the best part, this demon is immune to all but physical and mental attacks from other demons. Holy crap. <laughs> so if you're not a demon, just get out of its way. Yes. And, um, but the thing is, if it's supposedly made especially to kill demons, shouldn't it be the other way around? It's yeah, immune, think. It's immune would... to the attacks of other demons, since that's kind of its bag, is to kill them. It's bag, baby. That, that's its bag, baby. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, well. And it has 600 psionic strength points. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> so, just... Well, there are gods in Deities and Demigods he could whoop up on psionically. That, I suppose... When you turn a corner in a dungeon and run into that guy, you're just like, if you'll stay right there, I'll go get you a baby. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't kill us. <laughs> It's like, and as goofy and ridiculous as it looks, it probably needs all of that firepower just to, you know, keep people from laughing at it all the time. Yeah. Oh, maybe Although he just... is about the size of Pookie, Liz. Mm, that's true. Maybe that's yeah. just his backstory. The other demons didn't let it play reindeer games. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't let it play in any demon games. That's right. Wow. Okay, Jim. Can you follow up with a number two that's worthy of that one? <laughs> I don't know. Um, probably not, but I have, I have something I'm saving for for one. But uh, the particular I have monster... something I'm saving for one as well, and I'm I'm tempted to take it on my number two just to preemptive strike you folks. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be a bad idea. Uh oh, I love it. We've turned this into a game. Okay, roll a d twenty. I mean, there's too many monsters to. You know, like if he's like, what's your top fifty favorite monsters? I could do that, but I uh, was really attracted to just the way this one's written. It's the Vance Giant, uh, apparently a uh, giant taken from uh, Jack Vance's The Dragon Masters. Um, Twelve foot tall, brown scale armor, red and brown scale armor. Uh, can use a sword, a mace, a chest projector, and a blast cannon. And one of those does five d six, and one of those does seven d six in a cone. <laughs> So just, the, the the blast cannon is it fire and forget? I've not read. Uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's some kind of beautiful amalgamam of BattleTech and Jack Vance, and it just I'm like, okay, put that in a game. Battle Vance. <laughs> that could be a game. Cool. Well, what do you got for us, Greg? I am going to save my number one for number one. However, I have a very close number two that I think is going to cinch me this round. Uh -oh. It All is right. the dreaded garlic bread golem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it has a bite attack. It also has a garlic poison breath attack. Yeah. 
for four d six. But they're delicious. <laughs> Don't sleep on the garlic bread golem. Uh, looks like a man-shaped loaf of garlic bread. It is immune <laughs> to all magic. Fire increases the damage of its bite by 1d4. It can only be struck by an edged weapon plus one or better. Its victims will stink of garlic. Uh, the garlic bread golem is usually found carrying a sack filled with stardust potatoes, which it uses as missiles. Found normally in pizzerias. <laughs> I guess its damage improves when it's hit by fire because it gets crustier. Yeah. I guess so. yeah. 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 Wow, that's a that's a tough one to beat. On the other hand, if if you can attack it with melted butter, then <laughs> Dude, your your magic user in your 2E campaign needs to make a garlic golem, garlic bread golem to go after that vampire you guys are chasing down. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just let him loose in there. That would be awesome. And if they do kill him after all, well, he's rations. Mm. True. Glenn? Number two. Okay. I am <clears> – <throat> I've got a number one. I'm, not, I'm struck by all the different golems in here, as he mentioned, by the, the uh, garlic bread golem. I found the tar golem, and which is interesting, so you can actually reenact Uncle Remus, I guess. Uh, but <laughs> the radium golem. Um, glowing green gold affected by only plus two magic weapons. Cold slows at 50%. This sounds like a monster you'd find in either Johnny Quest or Scooby-Doo. <laughs> if it was Johnny Quest, it's something that Dr. Quest has to come up with some machine to stop him at the last minute. Or if it's in Scooby-Doo, you're going to stop him and take the thing off. Oh, it's Farmer Brown. <laughs> they have to, like, fly over it with jetpacks and dump lead balloons on it or something. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And that's – I. That's why I kept thinking of these like Scooby-Doo villains or Johnny Quest villains when I was reading this because it's just it's I know it's mixing sci-fi but it's like I'd throw this I'd throw mm -hmm. it I, and you know roll a dice see if it's actually a monster or somebody pretending to be a monster I don't know mm. okay use it in Metamorphosis Alpha and of course the radium part you randomly have to roll to see if you get a mutation after you fought it for X That's number true. of rounds and I would have been mutated if it weren't for you stupid kids and their dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is mutated. That's why he can talk and everything. That's right. <laughs> or they're all on drugs and just think he's talking. But anyway. All right. Well, my uh, number two on the list, I don't think can beat the garlic bread golem, but <laughs> it, it was a fave of mine. The carnivorous typo. Oh, I saw that one. <laughs> It's basically a weird-looking monkey thing whose job is to run after magic users, attacks them, and drains blood and life levels. Spells that go at him have a chance of rebounding on the magic user. No save. Ah, uh, classic. And it was created by Mark Swanson. And I'm like, you know, this would be really great if, you know, some evil organization you know, Brotherhood or something raised these creatures, created these creatures specifically to go after wizards. That would be awesome. So that's mine. I still think the garlic bread golem wins, though. Wins Huzzah. the number two round. Huzzah. <laughs> now, number one. You're number one, Liz. Well, don't do it. I I had to. <laughs> I'm number one. I'm number one. <laughs> um, 
Well, it was an, it's inevitable. I must have as my number one the entry for the Cobalt. <laughs> it, ha- it had to be done. So it had to, it had to yes. So volume one, um, the Cobalt listing. Um, apparently this Cobalt was created by a committee. Um, oh, boy. Yes. Gillespie. No. And I imagine probably no Not relation. Greg! Uh, <laughs> I have to give back my time machine. <laughs> Gillespie, Black Owl, Slimax. The Gillespie, Black Owl, Slimax Cobalt. Edited <laughs> by Sean Cleary. Holy crap. So, so Cobalt created by committee. And um, it's found anywhere. Its strength is 18 plus. Wow. And it uses weapons appropriate to its strength. Two-handed sword, flail, battle axe, warhammer, etc. The heavier, the better. Something tells me there's gonna, these are going to find your, their way into your games, Liz. Cobalt champion Could here. Be. All of its characteristics are rolled plus five. Whoa. It has twice the normal chance of possessing a magical weapon, often with strange combinations of pluses. Any non-cobalt picking up its magic weapon will take 1d6 points of damage and will take the side of any cobalts his party meets. Ah, that, that was the clincher, wasn't it? Yes. It's like they, but, knew, you, they, they knew you were coming. They, they yep. must have. Yep. So, yeah, the cobalt. I, I like I love their cobalt. They have a good cobalt. Dun dun dun! Cobalts again. Woo! All right, Jim. What do you got for our number one? Um, my number one thing about all the world's monsters is just its general utility today in 2014. I mean, it came out in the 70s up through early 80s, and uh, it you know all nostalgia aside, it you can. Still find copies for 20 to 40 bucks on eBay if you're a collector. If you just want to see these things and use them in your campaign, they're 550 a pop for the PDF on our PG now. Nice. And uh, even though, you know, it's typeset in the Stone Age and there's all the craziness and uh, ungame balance, uh, this is like campaign gold when you're like stuck for an idea. I actually did this a few weeks ago where I just had to run a quick one-off game, didn't have time to really invest in doing up something. Thing. And I just start thinking through it. I see the air squid. And I'm like, okay, I love that. And wrote a whole adventure around the air squid. Oh, that's it. I'm printing these out. <laughs> so this, this is good. I mean, uh, Goodman Games, the random esoteric monster generator is the thing we always point at on the other podcast if you want to create your own monsters. But this oh, is just yeah. like three volumes of stuff that's just as good. And especially if you're like me and you actually enjoy the sort of wackadoodle imbalance of some of the old school stuff. Okay. Okay, Greg, what have you been holding back for number one? I can't believe this one fell to me. I feel like I need a hype man or something to introduce this one. Dun, Lay it on. Dun. The Vorpal Bunny. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You yeah. took mine. <laughs> <laughs> Score. <Darn it. laughs> Point. Mr. Gillespie. <laughs> number appearing is 1D4, which just seems really tough on those players, you know? <laughs> um the Vorpal Bunny appears to be a small white rabbit. When approached, it leaps to the attack. Its speed and dexterity give it its high armor class. In all respects, it attacks as a Vorpal Blade, 
plus two hit and sever the victim's head. It is 60% magic resistant, mainly due to its speed. Anyone encountering a vorpal bunny will become paranoid of bunnies, mice, teddy bears, sparrows, etc. for the rest of their player careers from the film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, written by Paul Jackways. I warned you! Janelle! (coughs) Check haze, I swear, one of these days. (laughs) I think that originally showed up in uh, Dungeoneer, too. Yes, it did. That was another Dungeoneer. I believe it. So, curses! Curses! Oh, well. Quick, scramble for another number one. Uh, I've already thought of it. Okay. Kudos for Janelle. Okay, Glenn. Janelle and I are like the same age, and she was making stuff and getting it published when I was just a player. Yeah. As we seethe with envy. That's right. Okay, I okay. I'm going to try and dethrone the 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 king here, Greg, <laughs> with my number one. And God love you, Skip Ta- Davis. Thank you for this monster. Volume two, page fifty five. The lung dragon. Yeah. <clears throat> First thing that strikes me: hit dice twelve to seventeen d tens. Forget this D8 stuff. D10s. Well, it is a dragon. Um, <laughs> True. A creature so is cons- it? Go ahead. <clears throat> a creature, excuse me. <clears throat> a creature consisting of a small head and a large group of air sacs and just enough other body organs to keep it all alive. Bleh. All it can do is to breathe. It feeds on it by inhaling metal items, jewelry, that it inhales will be dissolved, the metal being digested, the gems will remain in its body. Its only form of attack is to inhale. The probability of being sucked into the lung dragon is 150% minus 10% for every 10 feet of distance from the dragon to the victim and minus 10% for every strength point the victim has over 13 once inhaled, the victim is dissolved by the caustic fluids within the dragon within 10 melee turns. <laughs> is that precious or what? Liz. That is extremely nasty. Yes. You were talking about a gold sink? Yeah. <clears throat> that's a gold sink. Yeah, that's that's better to that's better You've to You've got too much stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's better yeah, to yep. rust monster. <laughs> that might find my his his way into my con game, so. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, my number one was Vorpal Bunny, but it was taken, so I'll put in an honorable mention for the Were Platypus. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) And the Were Koala Bear, so, you know. They had some weird Were Critters. They had all sorts of Were's in there. There was a Were Ant, and I'm just wondering, (laughs) how is that even possible? (laughs) and shrinks down you step on it well, you, yeah. you, you, you never been bitten by a fire ant well how, how, how did you turn into radioactive fire ant uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right well any last well if there's any last thoughts let's go into products of your imagination and we can actually talk about it as a product your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the Cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. 
Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Products of your imagination. And if there's any product of an Im- that's been of someone's imagination or lots of someone's, it's been these books. All right. We're going to talk mostly format, art, and <laughs> as a product for value. We will start with Jim. And yes, we know you have rose-colored glasses. Oh, you know, the cover art, uh, particularly for its time, is quite nice. I've got no quibbles with the, I mean, the interior art, Liz is right, it's all booger art, and it was typeset on somebody's electric typewriter, or or (laughs) I I sadly go back this far, uh, typesetting machines were like the size of a washer-dryer unit with a little ball that went pa-pa-pa-pa, so it was one of those, but, uh, so art and layout. It's it's kind of tedious to get through and read. I mean, like uh, Greg said, the all caps thing is hard to read, and uh, you know it it is just of its time. It's like the basic D and D books. If you can't forgive that, then you probably shouldn't wouldn't be interested in this. But for content, uh, particularly if you're just mining for creative ideas, it's pure gold. Greg, yeah, I sort of feel the same way. I think there's um there you know there's stuff you could pull from this. I, I'd be pretty selective. Um, as I mentioned, I think. Uh, I think if you're looking at the aesthetic in its time, uh, that's one thing. Um, I I think it has a place, um, but I can't see it as a go-to book mm-hmm. or series of books. Okay. Glenn? Well, um, layout format. Thinking about the times and looking at it now, uh, it screams ditto machine. Mm-hmm. Um, and – yeah, it's a great, great idea book just to thumb through. But I remember – but but Greg's kind of right. It's not a go-to book, but it's kind of a go-to book as part of other books you use when you're making your own adventure. I want something really screwy in here. Okay, oh, okay, there we go, the lung dragon. I'll put him in type of thing. The thing I don't like about the layout is the fact that they're inconsistent with their stats. Like um, over here, the lung dragon has an armor class of nine. There's a locust here in armor class nine. There's no mention of hit dice at all on the locust locusts. And it's like, they tend to like drop stats and put them in depending, you know, it's like, well, this is what he wrote. Let's put it in that kind of mm-hmm. thing. It's You're no right. Consistency in the stats. Even the dice notation is a little fluid because it wasn't standardized back then. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But I, I don't see that as a real big problem. It's just a little annoyance. That's all. Okay. Liz. Yeah, there could have been more editing done to, you know, streamline stats and things. And we've we've gone over the layout of the interior to death. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say one of the things that I did particularly enjoy of all the three modules, I think the volume one, they spent the most time or the artist spent the most time on the cover of that one, Um, not just because of the quality of the art itself, but it looks very much like he even did hand lettering as part of the cover, as Mm. opposed to the subsequent ones. Um, Volume 3 seems to have hand lettering, too, for all the world's monsters, but Volume 2 was just kind of, eh, it looks like that they used standard you know, font to create for that. Not wanting to not wanting to go over again the inconsistencies of the layout and the type and everything. You know, as far as covers go, I think they they spent a lot of their 
most of their time, I think, was spent on making some very nice-looking covers for their books, perhaps at the expense of some of their interior art. But they they did a, a good job with getting some good artists for their three volumes. As a pers- what would you say in the books the percentage of art to monster write-ups? I mean, I don't uh, think there's an art for every single monster. Would no. Um, generally, I noticed. They seemed to, when they started a new letter of the alphabet, they would always have a picture on that page. Um, but they did not overwhelm you with art. You got mm-hmm. you you definitely get bang for your buck as far as information. Right. Um, interior art seems to be secondary. Um, they're more interested in getting you a big bag full of monsters. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's an information dump type thing. So. Nowhere near, say, the old Monster Manual. Or these that sort these of books are like the 1977 equivalent of a monster blog. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what I like about that is the fact that you could like print all these out and then draw your own monsters on the side. And, you know. Well, if you're an artist. <laughs> okay. I can well, draw you can stick figure. Yeah, that's uh, me. Well, I. I think I agree with most what people have said about the data. I think the, I see why they did the index and they were trying to be helpful, but I really think that an organization system in types of monsters would have been more useful, particularly for a DM. Yeah. Give some sort of quick reference range uh, so that off the cuff. But then, you know, this was at least the first book was 1977. Yeah. And, you know, the whole as Peterson said in Playing at the World, you know, they were still groping for a, an idea of how to do this sort of thing. So I can cut them a little slack there. And for five fifty dollars a piece for the PDFs, I don't know how much hard copies are. I think they're like – I think I remember seeing at Noble Knight, they're like 20-something bucks a piece. Um, has anyone else seen where no. they might be available as used hard copies? Well, eBay, but not for twenty bucks. Usually twenty to forty, and uh, the, like I said, the PDF versions are at RPG now. Right for five fifty. Okay. Well, here's a question. Um, I realize there's not going to be just a ton of visually impaired people who are going to be listening to our podcast, but how did the layout read for you when you put it into your screen reading software? Because I uh. notice it. It just jumps about from, you know, one column, two columns, three columns. Yeah, that that blue. I really had to pay attention because it split up stats. Sometimes it would like take two monsters and jam them, fold them together. Mm-hmm. But Mike, uh, take that as inspiration. As, <laughs> in, in these books, how did you tell that? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> So, yeah, it it doesn't do that well, Um, which is ironic because normally the older product, because they use stuff like courier font and stuff, tend to convert really well normally. But because of the playing around with the weird column, one column, two column format really kind of screwed it up a bit. It was kind of a hot mess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, dragons. How many dragons would you give it, Liz? Well, I'm – it, it, was, it was great fun going through these. Um, 
However, as far as me actually using it on a regular basis and because of the the typeset and it does make it kind of difficult to read for an extended period, my head kind of hurt for a while, um, I'm just going to give it three dragons. And I would have given it four if it had been, you know, set up a little bit more... Um, I hesitate to say attractively, but easier to read and easier to navigate through. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jim? Um, for collecting and having archaeology, I can't say archaeology. Archivist. It would, it, it would be a four <laughs> for actual use, uh, maybe like a two, so split the difference and say three. Okay. Jim? I'm um, yeah. Greg, (laughs) Jim too. Uh, I'm going to go a two. Um, I think that, as I said, it has a place. There are some things you can pull from it, but it's not a go-to book. Um, It's, and uh, I mean, there's, um, there's just so like in terms of, of the, the games that I play, there's only so much of it that I could bring to the table. So uh, I'm coming at it from that point of view. Okay. Glenn? Well, I'm going to give it three. I was going to give it four. But um, I think it's a go-to book as far as ideas go. If you're going to haul out everything else and you want something different, you look through that or the field guide to encounters from Judges Guild. If you want stats for like cigarettes and toast. But <laughs> but I'm taking a jag, dragging away because I just know one more thing that bothered me. It's kind of my, especially if you're printing these this out. It's in landscape format. That's hard to. Pr- I usually like to get them in, you know, the the horizontal, the vertical version, like regular books, because I double side stuff to cut down on the paper, and you can't do that with landscape. So you mm-hmm. got this long thing, and what are you going to put it in, and all this other stuff. So I got to give it three. Okay. Yeah, that bugged me too, especially with the converting into MP3s. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those. I know it filled a need at the time. And it's certainly, like Jim said, from an archival point of view, it really shows you not only what gamers were thinking at the time, but particularly West Coast gamers, like some of them, Perrin, Hargrave, you know, the all those guys experience. over there who played the, as Gary called it, Dungeons and Beavers. Oh, <laughs> Warlock. Warlock. Yeah. So um, for that, I think it's great. But as far as actual usage, I don't think I would get much use out of I, mean, I might use two or three monsters at most. Um, but just for fun reading, it's kind of, you know, when, if you can get through it, some of it's downright hilarious, as we've shown on the show. So on average, I'll give it a two, which should convert out, I believe, to 2.6. Woohoo! Yeah. And you can get them in PDFs, like Jim sure. said. At RPG now for five fifty a book. Yes, sir. All right. And if you want a hard, if you insist on a hard copy and don't want to print it yourself, check out Noble Knight Games or other locations. They're out there. Good luck Luluing this. <laughs> and so we head once again to the RPG Dusty Highway from the late seventies to the twenty fourteen and beyond. And how are we marching down that road, Glenn? 
I turn a lung dragon around on the other side and just squeeze its, its lung sacs and it propels me down the road. Thanks for the image. <laughs> <laughs> Jim. Uh, I'm going down the road in my wicker gondola suspended underneath an air squid. Woohoo! Watch those tentacles. Tossing batterings out. <laughs> <laughs> don't Train make me to get serve. My, yes, don't make me get my flying monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> and they really are. Liz? I am going down the road in a random sort of way. I could be flying, I could be crawling, I could be gliding because I'm being carried by a random horror, so I'm not quite sure what the mode of my transport is yet, but once I finish rolling up all these tables and stuff, I will let you know. Liz, is, your alignment, is your alignment hungry too? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it is. It's about time for dinner for me, so yeah. <laughs> okay. Greg? Uh, going down the road with the garlic bread golem in front with the wind in our face <laughs> and so we can just breathe in the garlic aroma. Now, if you just had a bucket of marinara sauce, you'd be... He just, he just stalled out my lung dragon because I got a whiff of the garlic and started coughing. <laughs> As it coughs to a stop. Garlic butter, garlic, go, garlic butter golems and lung dragons are natural enemies. <laughs> If not, we'll they be taking should. 40, we'll be taking 46 damage as we go, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, there's, I'll be heading down. I was heading down the road to go find the Indiegogo site for the new Barrow Maze, but I have this odd feeling in the full moon as I become a were koala and hunt my leafy prey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that wraps up 85. Oh, this Say goodnight, everybody. Goodnight, everybody. Goodnight, everybody. everybody. We're just not right. <laughs> goodnight. Free arc. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't touch that dog. The Saber Dive Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions and Association with D20. The Saber Die theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All monsters appearing in tonight's episode are fictitious. Any resemblance to copyrighted monsters, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die. But the worst one it seems haunting all of my dreams was the cockroach that ate Must have needed a seltzer. It's amazing how much he got down. For lunch, he just chewed up a suburb or two. And for dinner, he ate the whole town. Willard just sent me out laughing. I thought Ben looked a little bit ratty. Watch, sorry about that. But they're not half as bad as the worst scare I've had. The cockroach that ate Cincinnati. Oh, my heart nearly stopped. You will never be taught. The cockroach that ate Cincinnati. Olay! Olay? That's dumb.